Good morning. This is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my rock and my redeemer, the sword of God. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Well, um, as you know already, a good sermon introduction does two things. Um, That was a joke. It's not a good idea to start out with a joke, I'm sorry. Lesson learned. A good sermon introduction does two things. It accomplishes at least two tasks. One, it transitions from the moment we were just in of prayer, of worship, into a moment of proclamation and meditation. Uh, but it also helps the listener, the, the, the church, see within the passage our need. Ultimately, a good sermon introduction helps you have the motivation to listen to what I have to say, right? Now, you, you, all, you do know this, probably better than I know this. I struggle to say things concisely. I struggle to use only the necessary amount of words, and I end up using more words just like I just did. And so sometimes it just helps to, to just come out and say it, all right? So the need in Psalm 19 We need God's glory. We need God's glory. Psalm 19 is about God's glory. Um, Glory points us to goodness. We've said before that it's like an advertisement. It tells you that something is good. Nickelodeon's got it nailed down. Like they, they get glory and they know kids want glory. So they make their commercials flashy Glory points us to goodness. God's glory teaches us that he alone is good. 
that he alone is where we find life. We need God's glory because it leads us to God's holiness. And in God's holiness, we find God's grace. We need God's glory because it leads us to his holiness, which then leads us to his grace. Psalm 19 is divided into three sections. We have verses one through six that declare the glory of God in his creation. And then we have verses seven through 11 that declare the glory of God in his teaching. And then we have verses 12 through 14 that declare the glory of God in his grace. And we just use three very churchy words as we got some Christianese going on here. We're going to define those real quick. We've got holiness, glory, and grace. First, we're going to define holiness. Holiness can uh, unofficially be defined as set-apartness because set-apartness isn't actually a word. But that set-apartness means that he's other, that there's nothing like him. And holiness doesn't only mean other or set-apart. It actually means better, like so much more perfect and good and beyond in goodness than anything that has ever existed or will ever exist. God is holy. God's holiness is also the status of his nature. So um, God being holy is what he is like. How do we know what he is like? Well, he shows us, and he shows us with his glory. Glory, if you're writing down these definitions, I'm going to use a real word this time. Glory is the display of holiness. So does Nickelodeon really get it right? I don't think so. Glory is the display of holiness. God's glory proclaims his set-apartness that the glory of God tells people that there is no God like him. Let me give you a couple of examples. His creation, the heavens declare the glory of God. Did anybody else create the sun and put it where it is and tell it how to move? No. Creation, his kindness. Does any other person or, or God, false God, promise the kind of kindness that God has? Maybe. But can they live it out? Absolutely not. There is only one God perfect in kindness. His love, but also his word. His word tells us the truth. It doesn't manipulate us. It tells us the truth about who we are and who he is and what our life together is meant to be like. There is no other person, no other God, no other created thing in history or in the future that has ever been or will ever be like that. God is holy and he glorifies himself and points us to his holiness through his creation, through his kindness and love, and through his word, his teaching. Now, grace. We've gone through this one a lot, right? Grace is whatever undeserved or unearned thing is, is given to somebody. It's grace. Great example. God glorifying himself to us is gracious. 
And I hope that as you remember that we need God's glory because it points us to holiness and his holiness leads us to his grace. I hope that we start to look through Psalm 19 and understand how God's glory being shown to us is gracious. Because he doesn't have to show us how good he is. He can just hide behind all the stuff he created, but he does show us. He does give us the truth. He does give us his word that helps us see clearly. He doesn't have to do that. There's nothing we did to earn it. But he lets us experience it. The glory of God is in his creation. The glory of God is in his teaching. And the glory of God ultimately is in his grace. Now let's get to that first statement. Uh, as we look at verses 1 through 6, the glory of God in his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set the tent for a son which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. I, I have just one really quick thing that I wanna, this is like if we're, if we're taking a journey right now, I'm gonna pause and show you a site. The Bible often will not only preach to Israel what's true about God, but it will also preach to the world what they get wrong. This, Psalm 19 does this because at the time, there was um, multiple religions, pagan religions, that saw the sun as a god itself. And so that sun gave light, which brings life. So the sun is the source of life, but it's also, um, we, we haven't been the, the new guys on the block associating light to knowledge and wisdom. That's been like for as long as people have seen light and had ideas, they've connected those two things. And so they would think actually that the sun, the, the sun God was giving them wisdom and truth. So the sun God was the source of light, the source of wisdom, the source of justice, and the source of care for its people. And what Psalm 19 says is, whoa, 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 you got it wrong. The God, the holy God is glorified by the sun because it's God who made the sun and then put it there, made it to make light and heat up the earth to bring life. It's that guy that gives wisdom, not the sun. We'll come back to that, that default in just a second when we look at Romans 1. So being raised in the West, and, and I was raised in West Texas, but that's not what I mean. I mean the Western Hemisphere. Um, in America, we are really developed on this enlightenment philosophy, right? That, that we can learn about, um, we can achieve progress through learning, through data, through analyzing data, and then making progress intellectually. That we are in this, this perpetual ascent because we are perpetually growing in our knowledge. That's what enlightenment philosophy says. And there's so much good there. Modern medicine. Like I'm literally standing on stage right now because the, the good fruit of the enlightenment. But if we take that to the end of its course, what we end up is people like me 
who grow up in this enlightenment way of thinking that struggle to attribute glory to God in creation. Rather, I see it and I know facts about it. And, and I, I just learned how hot the sun is, how far away it is, how many earths you can fit inside of it. And rather than finding that information, glory, glorifying God, it just becomes natural to me to be like, oh yeah, oh, cool, the sun is pretty hot and it's big. And so I, I was trained scientifically growing up. Um, that just right where my gifting went was math and science. And that whole world teaches us to, to use logic and reason to rationalize away the supernatural, the spiritual world that we live in. We've made physical and analytical what is this, this um, enmeshed physical and spiritual world. We've just said, no, it's not spiritual. It's only physical. The only real thing is what we can observe. And that's just not true because God's word says it's not true. And so you might be like me and struggle to, to automatically by default say, the sun is there, it gives life because God put it there and made it give life. You may be like me and struggle to glorify God because of creation. If you're not, praise God for that. But, but I need, and, and if you're like me, we need God's grace to help us see God's glory in creation, don't we? But it, this isn't just a me problem. It's not just a you problem. This isn't just a science problem or an enlightenment Western philosophy problem. This really is a human problem. Because in Romans 1, we see that it's by our default nature to actually suppress the truth. We decide what's true. Let's look at Romans 1, uh, verses 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, we, are without excuse. There's another verse um, in Paul, one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians where he actually says uh, that Satan blinds us to being able to see the truth in Jesus just like he blinds us to being able to see the truth in creation. So our sin and our loyalty to the wicked powers keep us from being able to see what's real and true about the world. Let's keep looking um, at Romans 1, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. In their foolish hearts were darkened. We were already foolish and they became darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So if, if our problem of sin is that we suppress the truth about what creation is and who put it there, how can we know? How can we know what's true? What, what Romans 1 is telling us is, hey, everything you've learned before Jesus, don't trust it. You've got to unlearn all that and relearn in Christ. So how can we know? Remember, God's glory 
is in his teaching because his teaching points us to his holiness and his holiness shows us his grace. So how can we honor God as our holy creator? Well, let's, let's turn to him for help and instruction. Verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You had me at that. Like you could have ended the psalm there. Yes, I'm in. Revive my soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. It just keeps going. We're halfway through. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. See that? Enlightenment doesn't come from philosophy in our human carnal knowledge, but God's wisdom. Now I lost my spot. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true. They feel like bondage to broken, rebellious people. But they are actually true, and they are actually where freedom and life are. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Because creation declares the glory of God, it points us to find goodness and life in God alone, right? We've established that. But when we turn to God for goodness and life, he is gracious to teach us the truth. He is gracious to enlighten us. He is gracious to share with us his wisdom about how to survive this world. So God is glorified in creation and God glorifies himself in creation so that we would come to him to know what's real and true about the world, about God and about ourselves. Creation declares the glory of God and God's teaching declares the grace of God. Verses 7 through 11, David is using multiple words to talk about Scripture, right? God's teaching. He says law, precepts, commandments, fear of the Lord, meaning trusting and following him. But attached to each reference to God's teaching is a promise. A promise that your soul would be revived. Who else promises that? and then actually revives your soul. A promise that your eyes would be open to see the world clearly. Whatever whatever worldly philosophy can promise that, it only confuses you more. It's empty promises. God's teaching and commandments actually rejoice our heart. Anybody want joy? Like, not just, oh, today's a great day. I'm happy today. But stuff's hard. But man, I'm okay. God is still good. Anybody? The glory of God in creation, the glory of God in his teaching, ultimately points us to the glory of God in his grace. He does not have to teach us. He doesn't have to show us how good he is, but he does. Through Psalm 19, God is saying to his people, 
Learn from me. Take my teaching upon me. Come to me. If you're tired and just spent of trying to look everywhere else, especially to religion, empty religion that makes false promises, come to me. I'll teach you. I'll be kind. I'll be gentle. I will. Does that sound a lot like the voice of God in Matthew 11, 28 through 30? Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and broken or heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls because I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. Jesus is the fullness of God in all his holiness, in all his grace, and in all his glory. Hebrews 1. Uh, Hebrews 1 and 4, actually, we're going to pair a couple of different verses together to see these things all at one time. Beginning in Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God's saying, like, parents, have you ever said, okay, I'm going to say this one more time. This is God saying, I've repeated myself to you. Long ago, in many, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. He declared grace to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken. He declared grace to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That's not an accident that that's in there. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. That deserves an applause. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. What did I say his nature was? Holy. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he forgave you. He showed grace to you. He became the purification that you needed. Because remember, you rejected the truth. I rejected the truth. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Anytime God is sitting down, there's peace. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, Hebrews 4. What is this? Like, what's the practical bit of this? Let us then with confidence, not shame, confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Just like the heavens declare the glory of God in revealing the truth of creation to sinners, Jesus declares the glory of God by revealing the truth of salvation to sinners. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Like, I get why that's not an applause every time. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. But my gosh, Jesus 
is the radiance of God's glory because he makes unholy people holy. He makes unrighteous people righteous. He makes unclean people clean. He makes sinners saints. Church, I have this in all caps because I was supposed to yell it and I lost my breath. (laughs) You are holy because Jesus is holy. If I could look every one of you in the eye at once, I would. When you put your faith in Christ, you are holy because Jesus is holy. Do you believe that? Praise God that we are holy. Not because we figured it out and we tried so hard, but because we had the humility to receive grace from the cross. The glory of God declares his grace. And grace is an incredible gift. Grace is a gift you can only receive with humility. So, Let's walk through this last bit of Psalm 19, um, verses 12 through 14, because um, David gives us a picture. The Holy Spirit through David in Psalm 19 gives us a picture of what humility is. What does it look like to be humble before the only gracious, holy, and glorious God? Verses 12 through 14. Many, oh, nope, that's Psalm 22. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. God, I don't even know all my sin. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This is repentance. David is repenting. And he's not only repenting of the things that he knows he's done. He's saying, God, find in me the sins I don't even know these presumptuous unknown sins, and forgive me of those too. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Um, Humility is seeing ourselves rightly, okay? Humility is being dependent on God, not only aware of my inability to follow God's laws, but Really, how could I ever? Humility leads us to repentance, like verses 12 and 13. Um, And it leads us to beg for God's grace, knowing that if he never promised it, that makes total sense. Humility is praying, verses 12 through 14. Now, self-righteousness works its way out in both pride and shame. And those are two sides of the same coin. Pride, right? Thinking too highly of ourselves. Thinking like, I don't need God. And it's actually not even the, the, the proactive thought, I don't need God. It's a, a complete posture that we don't even recognize that we don't need God. It's this, this natural default of disbelief that I need help, that I need forgiveness. It's actually a rejection of forgiveness which makes you unable to then forgive others. Self-righteousness is finding our way of life, our 
meditations of our heart and, and the words on our lips acceptable and pleasing in our sight. Self-righteousness is what makes me look at the sun and, and, and think that chance and probability put it there and how cool is that that life just happened at random. And humility looks at the sun and says, God, thank you. It gets too hot in the summers, but we don't deserve for it to even be as cool as 114. <laughs> Self-righteousness uses my own wisdom to dominate and to take from the world while humility allows me to depend on God to know how to survive life while I wait for the life to come. Self-righteousness actually keeps me from knowing I'm self-righteous. Self-righteousness actually hates wisdom and thinks it's humble. So I don't need to pray. I don't need to be humble. I don't need to be forgiven. I just ignore it. And I can't forgive others. But humility depends on the grace of God to forgive. It cries out and begs God, please forgive me of the sins that I don't even know. Would you clean me up? I can't, I, I can't even fathom my filth. And humility says, God, I want, I want my mouth and I want my heart to be pleasing to you. I don't care what I think. I don't care what other people think. I want my mouth and my heart to be pleasing to you. Humility prays, verses 12 through 14. And then it declares the glory of God as it receives a grace it knows it didn't deserve. Psalm 19 declares to us the glory of God in his grace that then leads us to look inside. To ask God, will you show me how self-righteous I am? And will you make me humble because I can't do it? Now, we cannot receive God's grace without humility and communion. Band, you can go ahead and come up. Communion is an active weekly, repetitive expression of us receiving God's grace. So you, you got to come to the table humbly. We must pray verses 12 through 14 as we pray while receiving communion because the grace that was given to us by the glory of God was given to us freely in Jesus. It wasn't free for him. It cost him his life, but it's free for us. But I want you to know also as you take the bread and, and the cup and as you do this weekly in remembrance of his death, know that Jesus doesn't only give you his grace and his, his holiness and uh, his glory. He wants you to be filled with them. Humbly receive the elements this morning.